Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. What do you know about seizure and forfeiture? Well, if you're like me, you probably don't know a whole big lot, and it may not have ever affected your life. But if it does, it may have some very serious outcomes for you. So we're going to talk with somebody who knows about seizure and forfeiture. His name is Dan Greenberg. He is the Deputy uh, General Counsel for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Dan, welcome to A Consuming Interest. It's so nice to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Now, this is a very interesting subject and, and one that I would venture to say most people don't think anything about it until it happens to them. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, it certainly is true. And I, I think that, you know, there's there's an old saying, right, which is that a, uh, a, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. You may have heard that before. I'm sorry, and say that again? A conservative a is a liberal who's been mugged. People oh. used to say that. You know, people used to say that uh, when 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 crime was uh, very high in New York City. That's a that's a famous old joke from New York City. And the the counter to that is a uh, a uh, a liberal is a conservative who's been arrested, which is uh, that people often uh, find that their political views change once they get involved with the police and they're accused of something that they didn't do, because uh, I think. Uh, many encounters with the police are, are are often very unsatisfying, especially when you're an innocent person who's suspected of a crime. And so, so uh, it's been my experience that uh, it happens with some frequency that people get suspected of things they didn't do, and they often have unsatisfactory encounters with police. And I think we're probably going to talk about seizure and forfeiture today, which is uh, often at the root of some very unpleasant encounters with law right. enforcement authorities. Yes. Give us the historical perspective on this. This is part of the it's part of the Constitution about being protected against unlawful uh, seizure, search, forfeiture. Is that um, true? Right. So so the origin of seizure and forfeiture laws has to do with maritime law, which is you know essentially the law of boats, the law of the sea, thing, things like that. And it would sometimes happen that uh, uh, law enforcement authorities would would discover that uh, there was a boat or a ship that was carrying cargo that was illegal. And you know ordinarily, there's enough time uh, in the in the legal process uh, for law enforcement authorities to act, but the concern that they had in maritime law, was that if you see a boat that's carrying illegal cargo, the boat can just move, the boat can just go, and there's really not enough time for the law enforcement authorities to get there and do anything. And so you have these expanded powers of government that used to operate more or less on ships and boats. And now, of course, uh, you know, 100 years later, or 200 years later, we now have cars where the illegal conduct is uh, more and more difficult to uh, to detect and more and more difficult for authorities to capture uh, if it involves carrying something illegal, like, you know, like contraband, drugs, uh, illegal weapons, things like that. And so the origin of seizure and forfeiture laws has everything to do with uh, uh, the law of ships and the law of boats originally. And now it's extended to essentially the law of moving things. And we live in a much more mobile society today. And what this means is that government's powers to take things even without what we think of as due process, have expanded greatly. 
Well, that means a lot to consumers who are involved in it, I'm sure. And one of the interesting things that I found in reading a, a blog that you had written is talking about how this means consumers can lose a lot of money and not even be able to get it back because they can't afford to hire a lawyer to, to retrieve it. And even though they may have been deemed innocent in the long run, they may not get their assets back. Is, is that a fair summary? Well, you have really put your finger on the central focus of the problem there, which is that uh, it, it often happens, right? That uh, people, are, people carry cash. And uh, you know, in America today, people carry cash for all sorts of legitimate reasons. And what happens is that uh, 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 it, it might happen that someone is discovering that uh, or a law enforcement authority has discovered that there's a, a person who's been carrying this, this amount of cash and the law enforcement authority concludes, well, you know, I think it's likely that this cash is involved in, a, in, in something illegal. And, and so just suspicion in this case is enough for seizure to take place. Just suspicion is enough for the, for the law enforcement authority to say, you know, I suspect that this cash is involved in something illegal, and so I'm going to take it. That's seizure. And, uh, and what happens when a court, a judge decides who should ultimately own the property, that's forfeiture. And we ordinarily think of people being protected by the Constitution uh, we ordinarily say, you know, I can't be punished for anything unless it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt that I've done something wrong. That applies to the criminal context, but it doesn't apply in civil forfeiture. It doesn't apply in the situations we're talking about. And so you can have a situation where, where the suspicion turns an encounter into a seizure, and then the courts look at that and they say, well, the judge says, I think it's more likely than not that uh, the, the law enforcement officer is telling the truth and that he had suspicion and his suspicion was legitimate. And the consequence of this is that unless you show up in court and you hire a lawyer, you could be out the cash you're carrying. And I, I wanna make sure that I've described the real world dimensions of this because I, I took a look at some statistical information. I took a look at the average and the median size of cash forfeiture in about seven states in the majority of those states, the median forfeiture size of cash is under $1,000. And so, you know, it's, I think it is sometimes the case that people will carry, I don't know, $800, $900 for all sorts of legitimate commercial reasons. You know, not everybody uses credit cards, not everybody uses banks. And so you're in a world of trouble if you're searched and that cash is discovered and it's decided by the law enforcement officer that you're up to no good. And that's all it takes, bare suspicion. So you're telling me that if I were stopped, let's say I'm driving my car peacefully down the road, maybe I've got a broken taillight and the police stop me legitimately because the taillight's broken. But then if they discover, and how are they gonna discover this? Do They don't have the right to search me, do they? You, I know you did a cute little video talking about the rights what happens to you, the consumer, if you're stopped by the police? Now, I've got to say right up front, I'm a great supporter of our law enforcement. I think they do an outstanding job under some very trying circumstances. But sometimes they make mistakes. It can be very honest mistakes or sometimes not so. But in, in a situation like this where this consumer is driving down the road and you're stopped, 
And we're going to talk about this video that you did and how and what you should and shouldn't do if you are stopped. But first, let's just take a brief pause here to let our listeners know that they're tuned in to Of Consuming Interest. You're listening to us right here in the Federal News Network. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Dan Greenberg. He is the Deputy General Counsel with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we're talking about seizure and forfeiture which we hope it doesn't happen to you, but if it does, you you may be out some money. Now, Dan, before we took the break, one of the interesting things you said was that uh, you can be stopped and if even a smaller amounts of money may raise suspicion. Well, you know, sometimes, as you say, people don't like to deal in credit cards because they charge a fee. Um, so let's go back and talk about, first off, talk about the video that you did and how consumers can see it. So if you will use Google or some other search engine and type in uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, Dan Greenberg, they're taking my stuff. Uh, look for the blog. You will see uh, a number of things that I've written about, about civil, civil asset seizure and forfeiture. And you will also see that video. And that video is, is kind of a training exercise, I think. If, if you watch it, I, I think you'll be shielded from certain types of unlawful uh, seizure and forfeiture. But I guess what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back and, and ask, or excuse me, I'd like to go back and answer the question that you, you posed before, which is essentially under what conditions can law enforcement officers search you, search your belongings, search your car, search your environment once you're stopped because of some sort of, you know, speeding violation, your taillights out, that sort of thing. You know, and, and that's a, that's a complex question, but I'll tell you, the way that that most people end up searched uh, when they're when they're driving, the way that most people end up uh, end up searched is uh, the law enforcement officer says, "Say, would you mind if I searched your car?" And the person says, "Yes," or or more precisely, the person says, "Why I wouldn't mind. I consent. I wouldn't mind if you searched your. I wouldn't mind if uh, you searched my car at all. I'd be happy to have you search my car or something like that because you know we all have these." impulses that we you know we, we want to help other people and we certainly want to help uh, uh, law enforcement officers who, uh, who who often are are you know you know help helping all of us and are you know saving us and so forth and so there's a strong urge to consent whenever a law enforcement officer asks to search you or search your car and I think that that impulse may be misguided at times if you're carrying something that's perfectly legal if you're carrying cash, which it's always perfectly legal to possess cash, that that impulse may be misguided if you consent to a search because you don't want to see or you don't want to have the law enforcement officer see what you're carrying. And yet people do consent to searches all the time because they want to be helpful or because they think that not consenting to searches is going to get them in trouble. Well, there's something to that because I do think that if you're if you're pulled over for speeding, and you're asked to consent to a search, and you say, no, I'm not going to consent to a search, I think that, you know, you might reasonably draw the conclusion that, you know, if you don't consent to a search, the officer's not going to appreciate that, and the officer's more likely to turn a turn an encounter into a ticket, and that's a decision you have to make, right? I mean, these are, these are very difficult decisions as to whether it's more important for you to bear the cost of a speeding ticket or it's more important for you to bear the cost of a search. And I don't think that there's an easy answer to that. Um, I guess so, it depends partly on the circumstances, Dan. 
if you, as you say, if you are, if you've just been to the bank and you're getting cash because you're going to be traveling somewhere that you feel like you want to be tipping people, you want to be doing various things and you want to pay cash or you want to avoid credit card charges. You know, I think all of those are legitimate reasons. Um, I've known people who didn't like using credit cards. And I'm sure they would carry cash around. So you got to think about that. That's a very good point. What is it of value to you to whether or not you want to have your vehicle searched? Now, what about if one of the other things you did in the video was you talked about um, what happens if they say, do you know how fast you were going? The officer. I love that. So, so, you know, that, that's a, that's a very tricky situation, right? Again, because, because you, you, you know, you want to be polite and you want to be friendly. You don't want to impede people. You don't want to impede law enforcement officers in the course of enforcing the law. But on the other hand, you know, you're allowed to stand up for yourself, which is to say you're allowed to pay some attention to your own rights. And so my view generally is you don't, you aren't required to incriminate yourself. You aren't required to say that uh, you've, you've committed a bad act. That's, that's not something that's your job in the middle of a traffic stop. So, yeah, it's, it's my view generally that uh, if an officer asks you, do you know how fast you were going? I think you're perfectly entitled to say, uh, I'm not sure exactly how fast you think I was going, officer. Why don't you tell me? Now, again, there are costs and benefits of this approach because uh, the officer might, might say to himself, you know, this guy's really smarting off with me, right? But yeah. I think it's a much better approach than saying, huh, well, you know, the last I remember, I was going 95 miles an hour. I mean, like, that's a terrible approach because you've <laughs> solved the problem at that point for him, right? As soon as you admit anything like that, you have solved the problem for him. And so I think that what you want to aim for is, at the very least, having him give you a minimal penalty rather than a maximal penalty, which is right. presumably what you could get if you're driving super fast, right? You know, yeah. that, but just but just generally, the important thing to remember is that you're you're not in court, right? You're not you're not obliged to testify against yourself when you're when you're pulled over, but you also want to be you want to be polite. You want to be polite, yeah, and helpful. I mean, I think the difficulty is you don't want to seem suspicious, right? I mean, if you seem if you seem suspicious, that that itself is a large problem, especially if you're carrying cash. Yeah. Well, now let's let's move away from that area and talk about IRS. The IRS can see, does this fall under the purview of what you talk about? Yes. And so the IRS would typically seize, uh, or as we say, freeze, they would, they, they could, they could seize uh, uh, bank accounts, right? And, and ordinarily, um, they will, they will look at some sort of evidence of bad behavior. You know, if, 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 for, if for instance, it appears to them that you're disobeying banking laws, it, if, if, it, if it appears to them that you're doing something which seems designed to avoid uh, evidence or records of taxable conduct, if it appears sure. to them that you're, you're doing something that looks like tax evasion, they, they, will move, they will move very fast. Now, like there's a sense in which there's like, to my mind, there's a sense in which it's less of a good government concern um, than what we're talking about because it's uh, it's very easy when cash is seized to be a little bit careless in accounting, right? Because it's sort of hard to keep track of the of the, of the cash. But you know, if somebody has a bank account and it's got you know twenty five hundred dollars in it, um, I think I think those those records are going to have a longer and more stable life. And so there's a there's a sense in which what I'm most concerned about 
is is the the taking of cash without what appears to me to be due process. Sure, I think that's a perfect point. Let's just take a brief pause here to let our listeners know they're tuned into of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest today is Dan Greenberg. He is the Deputy General Counsel for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And, and Dan, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about cash seizures and property for that matter. And one of the points that you made earlier is that consumers often can't afford the lawyer because if it's a thousand dollars it's taken from you, you're going to spend $300 an hour for a lawyer to get the thousand back and it may too take more money than what you already lost. What, what are some of the ways that consumers can protect themselves? And I guess before I, um, before you answer that, put it in perspective for us, what kind of money are we talking about here that the government seizes? And we're talking about government in general. Well, you make a very important point, which, and, and I think an underappreciated point, uh, which is which is that uh, I think it's often not it's not widely appreciated what the what the true size of these forfeitures are. Again, I I went back and looked at uh, the typical forfeiture and the median forfeiture. I, I averaged together uh, across a number of states across seven states. The uh, the four lowest states had an had an average median forfeiture size of less than a thousand dollars. The other three states had an average. Or the the states at the top, the the biggest forfeiture states had an average forfeiture median size of about $2,000. And so we're not talking about the kind of idea that I think some people have uh, with respect to uh, 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 state policemen uh, taking $200,000 out of, out of somebody's trunk who's, who's, who's drug dealing, right? I mean, I, I think that there are- That's there are a little lots, bit different case. <laughs> yes, I think there are lots and lots of cases of what you might call relatively small cash forfeitures that rest on suspicion. And the difficulty is that uh, uh, let's let's say you've you you're you're the victim of forfeiture and you've lost you've lost nine hundred dollars because of because of forfeiture. You can go you go to a lawyer and, and you say, look, um, they're they're about to they're about to decide in court whether I have the right to my own nine hundred dollars or whether it's going to go to the government. And the lawyer will say, look, I'll be happy to take your case. That'll be twenty five hundred dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And and you you realize that there's no reason. For you to pursue that $900. It's just a dead right. loss. And but now and you so, told me before we started the program, mm -hmm. you gave me some figures that were just astonishing about the amount of money that is actually seized and forfeited. The government, which is to say uh, the federal government and uh, and the and, and the set of state governments uh, uh, end up taking oh somewhere somewhere around two billion dollars uh, in, 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 uh, in cash and goods every year, 1, 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion, you know, it, it, it varies of course every year, but it is a, it is a huge amount of money that, uh, you know, that is, that is composed of, uh, a lot of very small amounts of money, right? 800, $900, $400. Right. I've even seen forfeiture reports where, where, uh, people who were, who were thought to be participating in something unseemly, something illegal having to do with, uh, uh drug possession or prostitution. Um, actually had lost, actually had, had cash taken from them that was $5, $4, $3. I even, I even saw one that was less than a dollar, had some pocket change where, 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 the, where this guy's, this guy was seized. Um, and and the, the, the money was seized. And so, uh, you know, it just, it, it puts people who are without means in a terrible position because they go, they talk to the lawyer, the lawyer says, sure, I'll represent you $2,500. And so, so what happens to these people is uh, they, 
they, they do what's called a default judgment, which is to say they never show up in court. It's perfectly rational for them to do that. And I, I guess I want to make, I want to say one more thing about this, which is I read an article by a former uh, high-ranking uh, member of the Department of Justice in the Trump administration. And this lawyer, Rod Rosenstein, I think he was Deputy Attorney General, I can't quite recall his position, but he said, you know, the reason that most people don't show up in court for civil forfeiture is that most cases are indisputable. I disagree with that. I think the reason most people don't show up in court is that they don't have the money. And, uh, and so if you look at the statistics, the, I, I, did, I did some research on this, typically about 80% of the people who are who, uh, not charged with a criminal offense in any way, people who, are, who are, have this civil problem, who, who have to decide whether they show up in court, 80% of them don't show up. You have about 80% default judgments. And again, I don't think this is because they're bad people or, or that they've necessarily done anything wrong. It's because they can't afford a lawyer. And showing do up they have a lawyer doesn't do you any good. Typically. Well, you, you're not going to be on a level playing ground, but if you do show up, can you show up in court without an attorney? You can absolutely show up in court without an attorney, but the you know, unlike the criminal system where you have a right to representation, you really don't have a right to represent, you, you really uh, don't have uh, the right to have the government pay for your representation in the civil context, in the context of civil forfeiture. Yeah. So yeah, you can, you can, you can show up just like, just like I theoretically could try to try to perform a surgical procedure on my child. I mean, I guess I could try to do it. I don't think I'd be very good at it. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You need yeah. a little bit more experience and training to do that, Dan, yeah. I would think. Um, okay, so what we're talking about here is civil forfeiture, not the criminal, not where they've been caught with a boatload of drugs and money that has to do with drug dealing. You're putting that in a different framework from what we're talking about right now. Is that correct? Yes, because, because the central aspect of civil forfeiture is that you can lose this money without ever undergoing a criminal trial, without without ever being accused of a crime, without mm -hmm. ever being charged with a crime, without ever being booked with a crime. All that it takes for civil forfeiture to take place is suspicion, suspicion by a law enforcement officer. And that could be just something like, well, you know, this guy's breathing fast. He seems to have an elevated heart rate. He seems to be very nervous. Well, that's suspicion enough for me to think, you know, this money that he has here, I suspect that it's involved with the drug trade. I'm going to take it. I'm going to let the judge decide what to do with it. And then that property is taken, and oftentimes the consumer is lost, whether they were doing anything wrong time. or not. Eighty percent of the time, people don't yeah. even show up because they don't yeah. know how to defend themselves. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and it it is it would be intimidating to go into court with charges facing you and being there representing yourself. So I guess if you don't show up, then you just lost the money, and nobody did, makes a decision about the about the case. And the government keeps the money. So the, I guess one of the things here is to to be sure that you're protecting your rights. Um, and I, I don't know how we would do anything to uh, protect ourselves more than just try to keep our nose out of trouble. Dan, so with, that's a compelling ending, right? Isn't it? Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. It's been very interesting. And I certainly have learned a lot about something that I really knew very little about 
but until I read your blog, and by the way, people, you can go to CEI.org, which is the Competitive Enterprise Institute's website, and you can find Dan there. You can find all kinds of information. So anyway, this has uh, been a great treat. We've had Dan Greenberg, who is the Deputy General Counsel of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, as our guest today. And Dan, thank you again. You have been listening to Of Consuming Interest right here on the Federal News Network. I'm Shirley Rooker. You can reach me at Shirley at callforaction.org. And we thank you for joining us. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP.